Okay, part three, Revelation chapter number 21. When I started working through this this week, I said, oh no, there might be a part four. And then I said, no, we could do this. We'll see what happens. But chapter 21, certainly part three, because it was a couple of weeks ago that uh, we were in this passage. I thank Brian for sharing with us last week. That was that was a very wonderful message. You say, but Pastor wasn't here. I was watching on Zoom. I was, and uh, I enjoyed that very much. I got to sit back and see what everyone else has seen on our camera here. And, and you know, Evan, you do a magnificent job. We appreciate that so much. Because um, it really does. It, it runs very smoothly. And uh, you you may not feel like you're in this room, but in a sense, you feel like you're in this room because of uh, that capability. I thank you for that. And so I, I was able to enjoy that, and then Paul filled in for me last uh, Sunday night, and that was wonderful, too. A good time in Colossians chapter 3, and I should make you say the three S's. They were S's, weren't they? Yes, they were. I knew that. I was testing you. All right. But here we're going to Revelation 21, and um, our study so far, we've talked about the reality of the new heaven and the new earth, and we spent some time on that, and I, I present that to you in chapter 21, the first verse especially, but into the first five verses, that the old heaven and earth passed away. That's what scripture teaches. And that's what it says. And I, I guess I, I keep arguing against other people because there are those who believe it really didn't pass away. It's just been kind of refurbished, made over something, you know, kind of polished up and presented another way. But I can't get away from the fact that Peter says it was destroyed in Second Peter 3. And, and all the other references to the word new pops out as something new. And so we can not only study that here, but we can also go into Isaiah. Even in the Old Testament, Isaiah 66 talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And the Lord has not kept that as a promise, or I mean as a secret from us. It's his promise that that is going to be the case. And so I look forward to seeing it. And as I said several weeks ago, you know, that will be the first time that we will witness what we read in Genesis, and we had to take by faith. And yet, when he creates a new heaven and an earth, we will be there to see it. And how will that be? That is amazing. I don't want to take that away from the Lord and say, oh, well, he could just clean it up a little bit. I'd rather see the, the new one. I think that would be fascinating to me. But uh, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The, the other thing we looked at as well was from verse number um, 9, particularly 9 to verse 23, is a description of the new Jerusalem. Now, that is not the new heaven. That is not the new earth. That's a third location, the new Jerusalem, and it's spelled out here as well in quite a few verses. Um, and the description of this new Jerusalem is the one we typically hear people, when they're describing heaven today, they're using these words. It's 
streets of gold, all these pearly gates and all these other phrases, they are particularly in this description. The new heaven and new earth is not described to us. It's just stated in verse number one. But the description is of the new Jerusalem, and it's very impressive. It's very impressive. Now today, what we'd like to do is hit on both sides of this chapter, verses uh, two, uh, no, not two, three, three through eight, and then jump down to 22 through 27. And I'd like to call this the occupants of these new places. The occupants of these new places. Three through eight and 22 through 27. Heavenly Father, we've got an incredible task before us in studying your word here, for these things have not yet been, and we're waiting for the day when they will be. And all we can do is trust what you say, even when it goes beyond our ability to comprehend it, and comprehend it well. All we can compare to is what we know, Lord, and you know that. You have given to us a lot of things to help us with that. But at the same time, we have to trust you. Your word is true. And we count on that. We look forward to this. And help us to understand today, and especially, Lord, as we talk about the occupants of these places, may it come back right to our hearts. And may we be sure that we are to be the occupants of these places. So challenge us today. As we study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, occupants, occupants. Now, if I said I have news for you, what's your first question? That's exactly it. Everybody's got to know, what kind, right? Is it good news or is it bad news? We use that adjective in front of the word news, good, bad, So we know how to brace ourselves, right? Say, well, give me a warning. Is this bad news or good news? If your doctor walks in and says, I've got bad news for you, what do you do? You grab the edge of the seat, right? Set your feet. You say, okay. You've got to feel for that. When somebody says, I've got good news for you, you look forward to it. Dale, every time I hear the word good news, I think about you. It was many years ago. It was probably one of the first years we were here. I was down in my office teaching my my Greek class online. And uh, we just got a message that Philip was being moved to here. He was coming to Oklahoma. And you got wind of that, and you came into my office. My students were taking a test at that moment. It was quiet as a mouse in that whole I mean, everything was like that. And he walks in. I remember this so vividly. You said, good news! And when you said that, everybody in South Dakota jumped out of their seat. It was the funniest sight in front of my screen to see them all jump up there because they're right in the middle of that. And I just love that. Every time I hear of good news, I think of that little thing because that, that encourages me. I, I just like that scene. I saw them all jump, and I said, wow, that was fun. But uh, I, I will always, always remember that moment. Good news. Well, folks, today I've got great news. Every single piece of this message is great news, though some parts of it will be hard. But it's great news. All right? So follow with me as I walk through four 
different parts of what I call great news. Item number one is in verse 3 and 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, nor will there longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now, I know verse 4 gets our attention because we know these words too well, don't we? Pain and death, we know that. Mourning, crying, we know that. Go back to verse 3. Good news. God will dwell with us. God will dwell with us. It says that. God himself will be among them. You know the story of Maniah or Manoah? Manoah is his name. Manoah, you go back to a book called Judges. Manoah was the father of Samson. Wonderful little story wrapped around his life. An angel came and talked to his wife and told her that she was going to have a son. And uh, she went and told her husband, and he says, well, I want to hear that myself from that angel. And so he asked the Lord to provide the angel a second time and tell him that. And the angel came and he says, well, tell me what to do. He says, go ask your wife. I just love that. That was kind of fun. She already heard, but he wasn't going to listen to her. He had to hear it himself. But here in the midst of the conversation, in Judges 13, verse 20 through 21, it came about, you see, what I have to fill in a little bit. Manoah decided, well, if this guy's from God and, and he's an angel and his message is true, I'm going to offer a sacrifice for it. And he, he set the sacrifice before the angel. And it says that when the flame came up in the altar, from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. And then the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And so Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. That was his conclusion. We had just seen God. We're, we're going to die. And his wife, very common sense, said, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands. Nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear these things at this time. In other words, why would he kill us now when he told us he had a plan for us? But he came to a conclusion, I've seen God, I'm going to have to die. Where did that ever come from? Have you ever traced that through Scripture and said, where did they get that idea? To see God what meant they were going to die. Moses asked to see God's glory. Remember that day? He says, Lord, tell me, show me your glory, Exodus 33. The Lord said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Oh, okay. Go back in more time. Go back to a man named Jacob, way before these other two. Jacob, wrestling with God. Remember that? He's wrestling with an angel who happened to have been the Lord. And in verse number 30, Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been preserved. 
He wondered about that. Go over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Israel, in verse 26. They took it a little bit further, by the way. They tend to, at times, say, here's something, and then they add a little more to it. And this is what they said. When the Lord appeared to them, and the mountain was shaking, and there was thunder and lightning and all the rest, and they said, uh, for Deuteronomy 5.26, For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire, as we have and lived? They even went further and said, well, if God spoke to you, you heard his voice, you're doomed. And that was their conclusion. We heard his voice. And we have lived. Isaiah's encounter. This is what Brian shared with us last week. In Isaiah 60, or chapter 6, verse number 5. He says, woe to me, for I am ruined. What did he had just seen? He had just seen the Lord in his temple. And all the smoke and the, the shaking and the earthquake and all the rest. And he says, woe to me, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And his conclusion was, I'm doomed. Go into the New Testament. When John writes his gospel, it says in chapter 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. It's a very interesting theological passage there as well. But the idea of no one has seen God, horao is a Greek word here. It means to stare at. It's got some depth to it. It's not just a glance. It's not like, oh, I think I just saw God go by. One of those kind of things. But this is one who looks at him with discernment and clearly, physically and mentally understands what they see. No man could do that. It says, no man has seen God in that way. John chapter 5, verse 37. Jesus told the Jews, these religious leaders, the Pharisees and all the rest, he says, as the Father who sent me has testified to me, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. When Paul writes his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.17, he makes this statement, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. Invisible. The only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And then he writes again in that same book. That was in chapter 1, verse 17. In chapter 6, verse 15, at the end of the book, he says, who is blessed, the only sovereign, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Those are powerful words. Incredible words. It seems remarkable. But the reality is set before us as simply as this. We cannot see God because we cannot approach him. Because we are in sinful flesh. We can't get close to that kind of glory. We can't even get close to that. There's a promise right in front of you in Revelation 21. And do you see how precious it is now? In verse 2, 
of 1 John 3. Let's give you a verse here to set on. 1 John 3, verse 2. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. But we know this, when He appears, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now you say, well, that's speaking about the Lord Jesus. Yeah, it does. Technically, it speaks about our Lord Jesus. So when I travel down to verse 3 of chapter 21 in Revelation, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. Now we know the Lord will be with us, because we'll be with the Lord, right? That's our promise. That's what he said. But this stands out unique. God himself will be among them. And if you're saying, well, how do you know it's not just the Lord they're speaking of? Go to chapter 22, verse 3. Just turn the page if you need to. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. What did you just see? Both the Father and the Son. Isn't that incredible? And his bondservants will serve him. And in verse number 4, keep going. And they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. You know what I call this? Great news. Great news. What we haven't been able to do in the history of this earth is have that kind of fellowship with our Heavenly Father. But the day will come. And we shall see him. I don't know how. I know these eyes aren't going to work that way. They've got to be changed. And isn't that the promise of scripture? We shall be changed. That's going to be an incredible moment. Absolutely incredible moment. That's great news. God will be there. Occupant of this new place we shall be. You like more great news? Keep going in chapter 21. Go to verse 6. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Two phrases kind of pop out right there. If you look at verse 26 at the end and 27 at the beginning. The one who thirsts and then he who overcomes. Both of these are interesting phrases. You know, I like to play with Greek stuff and I dig it up and I say, what is that? They're both what we call present participles. A a, a participle is a descriptive adjective-like word, but it's using a verb to describe a person. So you could describe a, a person like a big boy, all right? Or you could describe him as a fast boy. The big is the adjective, just in size and such. Fast puts a verbal concept to it, doesn't it? The fast one, that's in contrast to the slow one, perhaps. But when we're talking at this passage here, he's not describing us with typical adjectives. He's putting verbs in to describe the person. 
So this person that's being identified as another occupant of that place is one who thirsts and one who overcomes. And being present tense as they are in nature, that means it's a, a continuous aspect to it. He is thirsting, 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 thirsting. You get the idea? He is overcoming and overcoming and overcoming and overcoming. It's a continuous concept. These guys don't quit. And I like what the picture is here. Because honestly, we've seen these already. In this book. In this book. Remember when he wrote all those letters to the churches in chapter 2 and 3? Church of Ephesus and Pergamum and Sardis and all those ones. We go through there and we talk about them and we say, okay, that's the church age. That's the way I described it to you. These are churches that literally were there and they were struggling with things. But remember at the end of every single one of those churches, there was that one first that usually started with, and he who overcomes. Every single church had that as the conclusion of that message to them. And at the time, I kind of set it aside. I didn't go into a lot of detail with that because I was waiting for this day. Watch the description because what he told them there was a promise. What he tells them here is the fulfillment. All right? Watch this. This is so cool. In Revelation 2, verse 7, to the church of Ephesus. Just going to pull out the one verse out of each of these messages. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. When we get to chapter 22, you're going to find the tree. All right? Chapter 2, verse 11. He who has an ear, church of Smyrna, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Guess who the occupants are of this new, these new places? Those who have not experienced the second death. When you get to Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. And you say, well, I don't understand that, and neither does your pastor. But I expect that to happen. But I think that's at the end. Thyra Tyra, chapter 2, verse 26, and 27, 28, and 29. This is a big one. He who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter are broken to pieces. And I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You say, okay, what's that all about? Nations? What do you mean by nations? Hang on a few minutes. All right? Hang on a few minutes. You'll see. Church of Sardis, chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Next chapter. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's such a refreshing, refreshing promise. 
I will not erase his name from the book of life. Verse 5, I argued over that verse for five years in my first church. Practically every single Sunday. There was one man who would walk into the church. He says, Pastor, look at this verse. It was like this every week. And he'd bring up chapter 3, verse 5. And he said, see, right there it says, he will erase their name out of the book. I said, it does not say that. I said, not, not. See the word not? He says, well, if, he, if that says that, then he certainly can do it. I said, that's not the argument of the text. It says he will not. He was looking for a reason for the Lord to scratch people off the list. I said, wrong verse for that. Because that's not what it teaches. I love the word not, don't you? He will not, not erase their names from the book of life. I find that comforting. He never found comfort in that verse. I don't know why. He was just stuck on it, obviously. But um, chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, Church of Philadelphia. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will go out. From it, he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. When can that happen? Only after it's there. Right? Which comes down from heaven, from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea, the one that always gets tossed out the window. Oh, they neither hot nor cord. Let's get rid of them, Right? Actually, the Lord blesses them. He asked them to repent, so what's that mean to you? They did belong to him. It is his church. And he gave them opportunity to change the road. And here is the outcome. Verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. And I also overcame and sat down on my, with my father on his throne. Let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You're going to see Laodiceans up there, folks. Look for them. They're sitting up on the throne right now. Or they will. Church of Laodicea. What, what is all this? When you read the word like, he who thirsts, or he who overcomes, we give an awful lot of credit to humans in that picture. As if they're doing something. And these verses, and even these things you just heard here from chapter 2 and 3, do not teach a works-based salvation. They do not teach that at all. Being thirsty doesn't suggest that you did something to earn your salvation. Rather, it says you're a needy person. That's what a thirsty person is. They need something, and guess what? They have to depend on somebody else to provide it. He who is thirsty. Remember what Jesus said about that? John 7, 38, 37, 38. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. We cannot satisfy that thirst apart from Jesus Christ. That's it. It's not something we've done. It's something he does. And we come to him needy, needy. Being an overcomer is also a verb like that. Nikao is the Greek word. We get the word Nike from it. Put on those shoes, you win, right? I tried that. It doesn't work. 
Nikeo is to overcome. To be victorious. Victorious. You know what scripture says about being victorious? Like in Proverbs 21 verse 31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. That's his department. Not ours. Later we read things like this in Corinthians. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then it says in verse 57, that's, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, toward the end. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I contend to you again, you do not accomplish the victory yourself. You cannot. That's our problem. We can't have victory over death or sin on our own strength. We cannot do it. Some people think they can. (laughs) It's impossible. He who overcomes is dependent upon the Lord for the victory. This is not somebody who says, well, I'm going to pull up my bootstraps, whatever bootstraps are. I've never had boots with straps. But they pull them up and say, I'm going to do it, right? I'm going to accomplish this. I'm going to accomplish this. And that's not what the emphasis of Scripture is. It's, I'm going to depend on Him who does it. That's the overcomer. Because the overcomer has to operate by faith. Let me give you proof of that. 1 John 5, 4, 5, 5. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. Who's going to overcome the world? Those who are born of God. You can't do it any other way. It says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith sounds like a wonderful thing, but faith has to have an anchor. You don't just walk around and say, I have faith. They say, faith in what? Oh, nothing, it's just faith. Faith is always trusting something else, isn't it? That's the element of faith. It has to be anchored in someone else. Who is the one who overcomes the world? This is where it answers that big question. Chapter 5, verse 5 of 1 John. He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It brings it right down to where our faith sets, doesn't it? It's in Jesus. Just like our thirst is only satisfied in Him, our victory is only accomplished in Him. So when I read this in Revelation, I'm not looking at somebody trying to earn his way into the heavens. He's one who's trusted the Lord that he would be an occupant of that place. The Lord says, man, that was a thirsty guy. That was an overcoming guy. He trusted me, and I provided for him, and he's here because he trusted me to do it. So that's a good definition. If you want to sit down next to everything, a thirsty person is one who can only be satisfied by Jesus. A victorious one is a man who has faith only in Jesus. So verse 6, right here, where you're looking in Revelation 21, he said to him, to me in verse 6, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of water of life without cost. And he who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. You know, you don't have to get there to say, oh, now he's my God. The people who go are the ones who know he's their God. 
Heaven will not have any strangers to God in it. Do you know that? There will be no strangers up there to God in heaven. These are the people who've walked with him and, and trusted him, lived their lives dependent on him. That's the picture you have in verse number 6. So when you get to the end of chapter 22, just flip the page for a minute. Look at verse 17. This is so cool. It's coming. But listen to what this says. It's an invitation. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, let the one who hears, Come, let the one who is thirsty, Come, let the one who wishes to take of the water of life without cost. Can you hear those words today? The book of Revelation is written for the church. I've told you that. It's written for the church. The believers in Jesus Christ. They put their faith in Him. They have found Him to be their source and the substance of their eternal life. They came thirsty. And He gave to them the water of life. They came defeated to Him. And He gave them a victory over sin and death and the grave. Does that describe you? Does that describe me? I repeat what it says here. Come, he says. The very last invitation of the book. Come. Get satisfied for your thirst. If you try to find satisfaction in anything or anyone else, you will be forever thirsty. Ask the rich man who Jesus talked about who died and went to Hades. He was thirsty. And he remains so. If you try to find satisfaction in anybody but Jesus, you will always be thirsty. Only Jesus is the water of life. If you have struggled in defeat, caved into sin, under a burden of guilt and shame, there's only one victory, folks. You can't find it in books. You can't find it in tapes and CDs and programs on the YouTube program. You can't find victory in anyone but Jesus Christ. That's reality. Because He's the one who's overcome this world and this sin and this grave and this death. He's overcome it. Right? But see, here's the beauty of all this. He says, come. Come! What an Im- Beautiful, incredible invitation. This can be yours by faith. That's what it says. Come. Come to Jesus. How many times have we heard that invitation? How many times? As long as today exists, that invitation still there. Come. 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 Because the fact is, God is not willing that any should perish. That all should Come. To repentance. He calls, he calls, he calls, and this offer is before us because we've got a God of grace and mercy and, and forgiveness, and we know it's accomplished only through Jesus. And it's available to those who come by faith. I call that great news, don't you? When we stand up in heaven, we're going to be surrounded by all these people who came. Who came. And I like that. That's great news. Let's add more interesting facts of what I call great news. We know that God will be there. We know that the thirsty will be there. We know that the overcomers will be there. This next one's a little harder to understand. Not as easy. 
But you know me, I take passages very literally, even if I don't understand them. Uh, I can't tell you in great detail what all this means, but let me show it to you. Verse 22, jump over there. 21, chapter 21, verse 22, and a handful of verses here. Verse 22, I saw no temple in it. He's talking about the New Jerusalem. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, that's, that's pretty incredible to think through, because we're kind of used to a sun and a moon and stuff like that. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light. Does that stop you a little bit right there and say, huh? The nations? The nations. Wasn't that one of the promises back in the list of the churches? There's a reference to the nations. You say, what, what was that? I told you I'd come back to it. Here it is. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth, kings of the earth, The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they, the kings of the earth, will bring their glory and the honor of the nations into it. Sound puzzling a little? Say, what? What is this all about? This is another description of the New Jerusalem. It appears to me, and I'm just going to give you appearances because I haven't been there and neither have you, so let's walk through it like this. It appears to me that this new Jerusalem is going to be sitting on the earth. Some people think it's suspended, and I don't know, maybe it is, and if so, there's some sort of interesting transportation between the places because people from the earth are going into the city. So I'm going to be okay with just having it sit right there on the ground, Uh, You can suspend it if you want. I don't think that's any big deal. We'll have to wait and see. But here's where my curiosity sets in, though. Who are these nations? Who are these kings? Well, I'll start with this. No doubt they have to be believers. Because chapter 20 ended with all those who did not believe were cast into the lake of fire. This is beyond that, I'd say. It has to be made up of believers. But it does suggest to me that there will be distinctions among the believers. The church is made up of Jew and Gentile. We know that. Believers in Jesus Christ during this particular dispensation on the earth. We call her the bride of Christ. And we've already talked about this, but the bride of Christ goes to be with the Lord and dwell with him and rule with him from his throne, right? We talked about that. But aren't there other people on this earth in different dispensations who believe the Lord by faith and they will be there? And they're not the bride of Christ. Who are they? Old Testament saints? Tribulational saints? Millennial saints? Okay. Who are these people? Is it possible that a tribulational saint might be somebody from a different country than ours? Okay, that's easy. How about a millennial saint? Could they be from some other country other than ours? Yeah. Old Testament saint. Were they only Jewish? No. 
Pick Rahab. Pick Ruth. Talk about Noah. Wasn't he Jewish? No, he wasn't? Oh, okay. No, he wasn't. You start talking about different people that live by faith. Job, what was he? We don't know. Job, you've got different people who live by faith. Was it possible, and is it possible, that the Lord can preserve the identity of a saved group of people from a particular nation? Just wondering. But it appears to me, because if you go through the minor prophets and some of the major prophets, he makes promises to some nations that has to do with the far future. You say, how does, can that be? I thought he was only interested in Israel. I thought he was only interested in the church. No, he's interested in people and nations. And it says it so often. The nations, the nations. Even read the Christmas story. Jesus didn't just come for the Jew. He came for the Gentile too. And those who have faith in him. Yes, we've got distinctions. We know him here today. And into eternity, that's not beyond our God to be able to say, oh, the believer is all from this location. This is your chunk of land. I've, I've made this for you. And he sets a king over him. You say, is that impossible? No. Who's going to rule over everybody? Christ will. And each individual nation will have its own leader. And they're responsible to come in and give praise to the Lord. You know what's glorious about all this? There's no sin in the picture. What does God say about righteousness in a nation? It exalts a nation. And someday that's going to be true. Every single nation on the new earth will be exalted in righteousness. Woo! What a great day that will be. Now that's the best I could do with it so far. Because I say, nations, really? Yes, I think so. I think so. Because these heavens and these earth, as Peter tells us, will be a place where righteousness dwells. I love that phrase. You find it in Second Peter 3. The heavens and the earth will be a place where righteousness dwells. And all these righteous nations will have access to the Lord and access to his city. And there's more to that in chapter 22. I'll stop right there on that piece and say, Hold on, there's more to come. But that's good news. That's good news. Our world is trying to figure out how to solve the problem of the nations. Our Savior did. We're going to see it. I love it. Now, this next one, we can call it bad news, but I call it great news. All right? There's bad news. It all depends on where you're seated today. If this is an issue of sin and somebody living in sin... I think this is bad news. But it's good news for the occupants of these places. Go. There's several passages here. We're going to see in chapter 21. It's going to talk about them in, let's see, I'll find the verses here. Especially verse number 27. And it jumps again into chapter 22 in verse number 15. And there's several other places we're going to point this out in just a minute. But here's the great news. As occupants of these places, we will no longer be tormented by a society that we live in. I don't know if you're tormented right now. Remember Lot? 
We always point the finger at poor little Lot and say, you picked a bad town to live in. He moved to Sodom. Nice place? No, bad place. But it says of him in 2 Peter 2, verse 7, that the Lord rescued Lot, who was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. But you know what? It goes on to say that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The unrighteous temptation will no longer be there. I call that great news. Verse 8. Here's a couple of passages. 21 verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that, that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And verse 27, Nothing unclean, no one who practices abominations and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then he hits it again in chapter 22 making a stress here, a stress. This is where my message would be banned on Twitter. Facebook won't like this either. Our society says we cannot discriminate against those who have different opinions than us. This is not my opinion, folks. This is what God said. It's in black and white in his declaration, in his holy word, and he decides who may and who may not dwell with him forever. There won't be picketers outside the gate. He has said it. You know, this world thinks God's indifferent to sin. Even Spurgeon thought that over a hundred years ago. He made this comment. God is not indifferent to sin. Men try to persuade themselves that God does not care. And it is nothing to him how men act, or whether they break or keep his laws. God hates sin, now and always. He's not going to change his mind. God doesn't make space for sin. He redeems sinners. There's a vast difference. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Paul said. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, yes it says that, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Woo! And such were some of you. But you were washed. And you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I'm not afraid to say it, and I'm not going to mark it out of my Bible. God calls sin, sin. And we should too. Because if a man does not see his sin, how will he ever see his need for a Savior? We have to present it as it is. Because I'm very glad to say, I've been set free from the power of sin. I can't wait to be free from the presence of sin. That day's coming. When we get there, it won't be there. That's what the text just told us. That won't be there. 
God's new heaven and new earth will have no sin in it. Woo! What a great thing this is. What a joy to my soul to read that. I call that great news. No sin. Godly nations. Satisfied and victorious believers. God himself dwelling with us. Can you get any better than that? I don't think so. But we still have another chapter to go. Chapter 22. We'll start that next week. I spilled over three minutes. That's okay. I was just excited. Heavenly Father, your word is wonderful. Your word is wonderful. We just take it for what it says. We are in for a real, real joy when we stand before your throne someday. We see these things and we see you. Oh, what a day that will be. I think we even sing that song from time to time. What a day that will be. In my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. And he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day, that will be. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving us from sin. Thank you for giving us a hope. And even more than that, a home. A home. What a precious thing it is to look at today. I pray that you work in our hearts, Lord. If there's somebody here today who doesn't have an appetite for you at all, they have no thirst, no hunger for you or your righteousness, they're immersed in this world in its sin way, show them again their need for a Savior. If they are not saved, draw them to yourself today and show them this is what you have done for them. And if they come... Believe they shall be saved. And Lord, maybe there's even some among us as Christians who've gotten so immersed in the things of this world, we have lost our sight on things above. We haven't sought these things and we haven't set our minds on them. And we don't have that thirst, that hunger for what is coming for us. I pray, Lord, if we need to be shaken here this morning, if we need to be jarred from where we've been in a, some sort of spiritual stupor, if we're, if we're callous, if we're indifferent, if these words just don't seem to hit any spot in our heart at all, do your work in there. Change it, Lord. Change it. Make it a heart like yours that craves the things that are pure and good and righteous and holy. But that's where we're going to live. May our appetites start to grow for that, we pray. Do your work in our midst, for all of us have need. And you are the only one who can provide. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.